Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, again, welcome to North Main Street Church of God. We're so glad you're here. I'm Pastor Brandon, one of the pastors on staff here at North Main Street. And um, I get oftentimes a lot of questions from people that are relatively new to us that want to make this their church home. And they ask questions like, well, how do I make this my church home? What uh, membership process do you have to go through? And actually, being a part of the Church of God Anderson, Indiana, which is the fellowship we are linked to, we don't have a formalized membership process because we don't believe in formal membership. What we believe that is if you are a believer in Christ, you are a member of God's holy church. Uh, There's nothing we can do to add you to that roll book. It's what you do to believe in Christ that makes you a member of God's holy church. We believe his church is pretty grand and pretty big. It's not necessarily a facility. Rather, it's a people who gather in his name to worship him. So having said that, how do you become a part of this church? Well, there is an actual process to to become a, a, a faithful attender or if If you like the word membership, if you want to be a member, there's a process, and the process is our discovery series. We had a class that started this morning called Discover North Main. That's the first in a four-part series that you want to go through to be a part of North Main. So in case you were curious about that, if you've never attended those classes, even if you've been here for 100 years and you still have breath of life, uh, you are welcome to join in and go through the Discovery Series with us. It is something I don't think you would want to miss. Maybe you've been here forever and you don't know what the process is to become a fully active person here at North Main Street Church of God. This is the process. It's called Discover North Main, then we discover faith, and then you discover you. And the final one is Discover Your Fit, which is just kind of a chain link process to get connected here. That's my little commercial blurb before we get into the sermon. Does that feel good? Amen. (laughs) All right, good. And we want you to get involved. We don't want you just to come on Sunday mornings. We want you to get connected because we believe when you are connected in ministry, you impact the kingdom of God for his righteousness and his glory. And there are so many things that come from that. So many experiences that you otherwise wouldn't happen in your faith walk if you become a part of a process like that. So please... um, Inquire. It's not too late to sign up for Discovered North Main. Meet Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock in the morning. We have a, a myriad of other small group opportunities for you, but if you are new to North Main or you just want to go through this, please see Christy Pittman, make a, a note on your communication card, uh, or somehow get that information to the office, and we will get you signed up and get you the information, Okay. All right, now having said that, we are done with Love Does. No, actually we're not. It's an ongoing process. You should still continue to do love because love is an action. But we finished our series on Love Does last week, and now this month we're starting a new series called Hopeful in the Meantime. 
We've been looking at the definition of love uh, by Paul's definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which says this, love is patient and kind. It's not jealous, boastful, or proud, or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. And some translations add that love never fails. Today, we're going to be looking at the aspect of love that is always hopeful. And the best place that kept coming to mind when I was planning this series several months ago was Hannah, the story of Hannah. Now, she doesn't have a huge part in Scripture, but if we look at 1 Samuel, starting with chapter 1, we pick up this story of Samuel's birth, but it doesn't start very easily. It starts with a woman named Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, who... We're trying to have kids together. Elkanah had another wife. And yes, in those days, it was common to take multiple wives. Now, you might ask, does God say that that's okay? Well, he is very absent in saying whether or not it's okay or not. But if we look at what God designed from the very beginning of time, did he design one man and two women at the beginning of creation to be in a relationship together? And what did he say at the very beginning? Now, I know this runs against the grain of culture in our culture today, but just hear me out on this, because we believe that Scripture states what is truth, and we should live by that. So what did he state before the fall? Before sin entered the world, he created man from the dust of the ground. And he formed him. And then what else did he do? It says not only did he form him, he breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life. In Genesis chapter 2, we get this perfect image of God creating everything, bringing the animal kingdom to to Adam to say, what will you name them? And he names all of creation's animals, and he still is left wanting. And God says, well, it's not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? He creates a woman. Now we think it's from a rib. We don't really know. It just says he took something from the side, flesh from the side of Adam. Now, in order to do this, he had to knock Adam out. I think it was a heavenly two before, but I don't really know for sure. But anyway, he put him to sleep, and he did the first surgical procedure known to mankind, and he took a piece of Adam to create Eve. Now, why didn't he create Eve from the dust of the ground and breathe into the nostrils of breath of life? Nobody really knows. Theologians have speculated. I'll give you my two cents worth, like you asked for it. And uh, I think he did it because the two are of the same substance. See, when Adam awoke and he saw this woman who was created from a piece or a part of who he was, it wasn't this narcissistic thing for him. It was, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And he called her woman, or Isha, taken from my side. She is of the same substance of me. See, I think if God had created her from the dust of the ground and breathed into her the breath of life, 
she would have been a different species. And some of you say, well, women are a different species. But some of the women say, guys were from Mars, right? Isn't that the old book back in the day? I don't know. But he created from the same substance. And what happens when the two are joined together? So he took Eve. Now, this isn't a part of the Hannah story, but I'm going to get there. I promise you, this will tie together. He takes Eve from a part of, of Adam, or the first man. So he separates the two, but she's a part of the same substance. She's fully independent, fully equal. And what does he say in Genesis 1 verse 27? The two become one. He created them male and female. In, in chapter two, he says, and now for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall join together and become what? One flesh. There's so much poetry there. There's so much symbolism there. But the reality is the two have become one. That was God's original design. Well, where did it go off the rails? Well, back earlier, several months ago, we did a story of Cain and Abel. Do you remember Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous? Love doesn't do things out of jealousy. Love doesn't know jealousy. But Cain was jealous. He killed his own flesh and blood, his own brother. And what happens? Well, if you look at Cain, he's sent out to wonder. He's left with the mark so that nobody will kill him because if they did, then it would be even worse for them than it was for Cain. But we see a line of descendants coming from Cain, which is where we start to get multiple marriages. Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, has a ton of women in his harem, and he makes a name for himself, and he goes out and murders, and he justifies his murdering because why? Well, if Cain had a mark on him, then let anybody who tries to kill me, let their punishment be even worse. And so he perpetuates this ongoing sin cycle, and it starts to get contorted and twisted. Now, you read the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible. There are tons of different laws there. There's some about marriage, some about sexual immorality. There's all these different things, and it's hard to muddle through and make sense of, but there is sense to be made of that stuff. But God never once ordains marriage of more than a husband and a wife. Anything else is a perversion of that. And we see, if you go through and you look, Jacob had two wives and he had two concubines, which are the servants of his wives. So he technically had four wives. Did it go well in that scenario? No, because Rachel, his favorite, couldn't have kids, but Leah could. And Leah, who had kids, and Rachel, who couldn't, there was a bit of tension in the family, wasn't there? And then Leah stopped having kids, but Rachel had given Jacob his servant, her servant girl. So at least she could have kids through my servant girl. And so now Rachel's servant starts having kids with her husband, Jacob. This is messed up stuff. Starts having kids with the servant girl, Rachel's servant girl. And then Leah gets jealous because she's not now having any more kids. So she gives Jacob her servant girl. There's a competition with the women. And Jacob's like, okay. 
and he takes the women into his bedroom. And it's constant conflict. It doesn't bode well. One marriage is hard enough in this life. Imagine having multiple marriages. Now, I wanted to clear the air on that before we get to 1 Samuel because I know there are going to be tons of questions. Wait, Elkanah was a righteous and holy man, but he has two wives, and that means it's okay. No, don't read into something that's not there. All right? Now, having said that, how is love always hopeful? I think love is always hopeful as best illustrated in Hannah's story, like I said, which is just a couple chapters long, in that she continued to press into God, hoping for the chance that she might have children. She was getting up in age. We don't know how old she was, but she tried and tried and tried with Elkanah to have a child. And in that culture, in that day and age, it was shameful for a woman to be barren. Did you know that? Like it or lump it, she was not able to have kids, and it was looked down upon. If you couldn't have kids, then obviously there was something wrong with you. Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally, you were considered somewhat of an outcast. And husbands didn't like wives who couldn't bear them children, because there had to be offspring to carry on the lineage. So male children were valued highly, more highly than women. But Elkanah loved her, even in her barrenness. Let's pick up her story today. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to read eight verses today. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elite. Oh, these are horrible Son of Bob, son of Jimmy, son of... I'm, I'm actually going to try to pronounce them for you, but all right. Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an, Ephraim, an Ephraimite. Okay. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Can you say Peninnah? Okay, good. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, I know Phinehas from Phinehas and Ferb on uh, TV, and if you don't remember that, you're probably too old, but, or too young. All right, sorry. They were priests of the Lord, and Eli was the high priest. Um, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Store that away for a minute. Her rival used to provoke her severely. Who was her rival? Elkanah's other wife. That sounds like a match made in heaven, right? Elkanah, Peninnah, and Hannah. Hannah's rival was the other wife, Peninnah. 
Why was she her rival? Well, we're about to find out. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Ha <laughs> ha, you can't have babies. I don't know what kind of language. I mean, it was the Hebrew language or Aramaic and whatever. I don't know how they spoke. But however it was, they were, she was wagging a finger, pointing and doing na-na-na-na-na stuff, okay? Just irritating Hannah because Hannah couldn't have kids. And irritation is, is the best translation we can get from this, but irritation doesn't quite speak what was happening in Hannah when Peninnah would provoke her. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Because Hannah went too, Peninnah went as well. It was customary that the family would track to make these sacrifices. Only Elkanah could make the sacrifice on behalf of the family. And so they'd go together and on the journey there to make the sacrifices, Peninnah would just goad and provoke and irritate the heck out of Hannah. You know, there's not much new under the sun. That stuff still happens today, doesn't it? When somebody has something and another person doesn't, there's always this bullish mentality that tends to rise up in certain people to show off what they have when other people don't. To prod, to poke fun, to make fun of those who don't have the best clothes from the best stores or the right kind of labels. And so there's this hierarchy that's been established in the sinful world that says, if you have all of this stuff, you're better than the person that doesn't. But in God's kingdom, do you think there's a hierarchy like that? No. In God's church, in the early church, it was never supposed to be that way either. You read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. It says they had everything in common. Where there was one among them that had need, somebody that had extra would sell off property or sell off things so that those who had need would have no needs. The early community of faith had no needs among them. And this is what stunned the outlying communities outside the church. They're like, what is it with this group of people? They care for one another. And they aren't even family members together. Some of them are aristocrats. There are high authority people in the community and other ones are just really like, Street cleaners, how is it that they can be family together and share everything together and there be no needs among them? These social classes don't intermix. See, this is the kind of stuff that was going on in Hannah's day and it continues to today. And you know why? Because of the perpetuation of this ongoing mindset of sin and death that permeates, sadly, even the church today in our culture. How many of you have looked down the noses of others in the church or have been looked down from other people inside the church? It's sad. It shouldn't be. It is sinful and it permeates an environment of death. But this is what was going on in that small household, Elkanah, Peninnah, and Hannah. And Peninnah was relentless. And every year when they would go, Peninnah would provoke, would irritate. Therefore, Hannah wept, it says, and she would not eat. 
It's not that she couldn't eat, she wouldn't eat. Have you ever been so racked to the core, so depressed, so hopeless that you couldn't eat? Have you ever been so grief-stricken that you couldn't, you didn't even want to get out of the house? You had no appetite. This was Hannah. This was her story. But her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Now, I think that's a bit arrogant. But if you know what he's saying here, it's not arrogant. Because it's almost like, hey, you got me, baby. Right? It's not, that's not what he's saying. All right? What is he saying to her? What did I tell you was customary in that culture at that time? Even the husband wouldn't like the wife who was barren. But he loved her. He cared for her. He didn't care that she couldn't have children. I'm sure he wanted that for her, and he wanted it for himself to some degree. He wanted to have kids with her, but she was unable to. But do you think for a second that made him angry with her? That made her an outcast to him? Definitely not. What he's telling her is, I still love you no matter what. I care for you. I don't care if you can give me 100 kids or one kid or zero kids. I still love you. That doesn't matter to me. And he proved that to her by giving her a double portion of the best of the sacrifice. Because what they would sacrifice on the altar were only certain portions of the meat or or the sacrifice. And then they would give certain portions of the meat back to the family. And when they got those certain portions back, remember, he would give her a double portion. Even though she had no kids. He was treating her well. He was treating her with grace. He was treating her with this unconditional love. So what are the two things we could take away? Well, here's a key point first, and that's this. In times of distress, it's important to look at who is for us rather than who is against us. Let me ask you a question. When you are feeling at your worst, and I'm not talking physically because I know it's that time of year to get colds, coughs, and all that stuff. But when you are feeling mentally and emotionally at your worst, what sounds, what voices do we hear the loudest? Now, you may hear the encouraging ones. Maybe you've trained your ear to shut out the distressing ones. But oftentimes, when we are at our lowest point and somebody says something to us to cut us down just a little bit more, that voice speaks louder than somebody else saying, I love you. Doesn't it? And we start to believe the lie. Well, everything in us feels grotesque and horrible and bad and all of the words that you can maybe even conjure up to say how you feel and they maybe don't even do how you feel justice. But when we are at that point, we start to make these agreements in our minds when somebody says, gosh, you couldn't get this right? You couldn't get, you know what, you're right, I couldn't. And then another person totally unrelated to the situation or maybe not even knowing that we're going through a rough time will say something else and they don't mean it to cut down. It may even be a constructive criticism, but we take it as criticism nonetheless and we continue to get cut down. Yeah? Oh, they're right. And we start to believe the lie that we're worthless, we're hopeless, nobody loves us, nobody cares for us. Would be best if we just go away from everybody, run away, or do the unthinkable and commit suicide. 
We are at such a place in our culture of hopelessness because God has been taken out of much of society now and because people don't believe in God as much as they did back in the day that when a person gets to this sheer, complete, utter, hopeless place in life, they have nothing to lean on, no one to lean on. And when you're at your most low or your most desperate place in life, the enemy will convince you that the best thing for you to do and the best thing for everybody around you is to leave the scene. He does that very well. He's a master at death. And if he can get you to commit the worst atrocity in your own life, which is to take your life, he's won over you. Suicide rates are skyrocketing in our country. It's because we're a country with no hope anymore. Church, we have hope. And hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Now that sounds like a pithy statement and right, the churchy answer to give, but when you completely surrender your life to Christ, no matter how low you go, he's right there with you. I love Psalm 23, you hear me quote it often. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will have no fear. Why? because you are with me. See, even David, who wrote those six verses in Psalm 23, knew there was a reason for hope, even though I go through some of the darkest times in my life. I'm not gonna fear because I know you're there. I need to remind myself constantly, God, I know you're here, even though it feels like you're a million miles away. I know you're right there with me. I know you are walking this journey with me. I believe in faith that you are my shepherd and you will guide me through this. So in times of distress, it's important to look at who is for us rather than who is against us because there are enough people in this world that are against us that we can make a great case against ourselves and go down this path of destruction. Be careful. Another example of this is uh, Elijah. Elijah who, who overcame these 400 plus prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story? Maybe you don't. See, Elijah was a prophet of God, a righteous man. Not a perfect man, but a righteous man in God's eyes. And he was a prophet to the nation of Israel. But King Ahab and Jezebel had started allowing sinful things, pagan cultures and ritualistic behaviors to happen in the country. They started allowing their infants to be passed through the fire, meaning they sacrificed their babies on altars to Molech and to Baal. And Elijah, the mouthpiece of God, the prophet of God speaks and says, enough! I'm gonna challenge all these prophets, come with me. And he challenges these prophets of Baal to a contest. And the contest is, whoever's God wins is the one true God. 
Baal or Yahweh? Who is it? Yahweh being the name for God. Elijah has this contest. The prophets of Baal work day to night, and their God never shows up. And Elijah prays a prayer to God, a simple prayer. And in that one instance of prayer from a righteous man, fire from heaven fell, consumed the offering, and even the water in the trench around the offering that they'd poured over this offering. And you know what Elijah had done? Sounds brutal. But all the prophets of Baal were put to death. Jezebel finds out about it. Queen Jezebel. You think she's happy? (laughs) Definitely not. You know what she does? She sends out mercenaries to find him because she said she wants him dead. Jezebel comes after Elijah. And Elijah says, bring it on! Actually, no, he doesn't. You know what he does? He runs like a scaredy cat. It doesn't match, does it? But when we have accomplished so much stuff through the strength that we have within us and that God gives us, sometimes we get tired. And in our tiredness, we become weak. And at our weakest point, the enemy knows how to attack, doesn't he? And Jezebel, after he's done this great thing, she gets royally ticked off. Not figurative, literally, she was a royal queen. She gets ticked off at him and sends people to come and hunt him down and kill him and bring his dead body back because she wants to make a point. You're not going to do this to my prophets. And he runs and he goes into the wilderness and he falls asleep. And as he wakes up, he's fed by God, by a raven who brings him bread and water and the voice of the Lord says take rest the journey ahead is long and so he rests some more and he gets up and he goes and he comes to the mount the mountains of Moriah there are mountain range actually what would be considered the area of where modern day Jerusalem is it's also the mountains ironically where Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac. But Elijah comes to these mountains and guess what happens? He goes up, he's on the mountain and I'm getting the sequence out of order but there's a mighty whirlwind that comes and envelops the mountain but the scripture tells us that God wasn't in the whirlwind. Then a mighty earthquake comes and shakes the rocks loose from the crevices in the mountain, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then this mighty rushing fire, if you will, comes and envelops the mountain, but God wasn't in the fire. And as Elijah sits there and waits to hear from God and to see God, there are many different versions of this. A still small voice, A gentle whisper is heard by Elijah in the stillness on the mountaintop. And the voice says to him, Elijah, go back to the work I've called you to. I love you, but you're not the only one who has remained faithful to me. 
there is a remnant of 7,000 people who have not bowed to the prophets of Baal, and they are still my people. Go back and lead them and do the work I've called you to. When you feel you're most hopeless, if you allow the outside voices of the mighty rushing winds, the fires, the earthquakes of life to consume you, you don't tune your ear to the still small voice of God and you can't hear him. We're gonna find out in Hannah's story next week that God hears her in her hopeless situation. But today we find out for her, she's, she's, what is she doing in her hopeless situation? She's, she's stopping, she's not eating, she's not doing things, she's being provoked, she's at her lowest point. But God is with her through that deep, dark valley. The fact that Hannah was barren ended up overriding the fact that Elkanah loved her. And that's your first point. And they only have two points today. We're going to get through these super quickly. Think about this for a minute. I've been illustrating this up to this point, that the fact that Hannah was barren overrode the fact that Elkanah loved her. What are you weeping for? Why aren't you eating? Am I not more than 10 sons to you? Now, it sounds arrogant, but it's coming from a heart of love. I love you no matter what. For whatever reason you're barren, I still love you. But she was so lost in her pain and grief that she couldn't hear the voice of Elkanah calling out to her, I love you no matter what. My actions show it. It's not just words from my mouth. I'm showing you my love for you. Don't you believe me? Don't allow yourself to get like Hannah to the point of hopelessness where you allow that hopelessness to rule your life to cause you to stop eating, to cause you to stop believing because you miss some important points if you get stuck there. You miss some important voices when you get stuck there. The second part of this is the fact that Elkanah loved Hannah, provided an opportunity and space for Hannah to work through her distress. So this is not only for Hannah, but it's for others who have Hannahs in their life. You may know somebody right now that is at their worst. They're at their lowest point. They just can't get beyond X, Y, or Z. You fill in the blank. You know their story. I don't. But you know somebody that's at the end of the rope. Do you know the best thing you could do for them is to walk with them, to be with them, to provide them space and an opportunity. Provide them space. That doesn't mean leave them, but provide them space and an opportunity to learn and to grow. And you be an ever-present reality in their lives that shows them love. Even when they think everybody else has left them alone. Well, what, what if I'm being obtrusive? Sometimes you have to press in even when the fight is the worst. Sometimes you have to press into somebody. It's not being obnoxious. It's not being obtrusive. See, the problem I think in the church is we've decided to be hands off in ministry now. It's who am I to judge or who am I to speak into that? I don't want to invade their private space. We live in a world right now that is so disconnected 
but we think we're connected. We're, we're connected via social media or whatever you might want to put in its place, but we are not connected. We are the most disconnected we've ever been. And so it feels weird to talk to somebody face to face, but we weren't created to talk to people through devices. We were created in the image of God to commune with one another face to face. And sometimes that means sitting in silence. Sometimes it means soaking in the opportunity just to be in the same space with someone who is in distress. And though their words may be telling you, get away from me, don't leave them alone. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be overbearing, but press in gently with all love and encouragement. Show them that you're willing to walk with them through whatever season that they're in. It's not easy because you may be the outlet that they yell at, that they get frustrated with, but you continue to love them through that rejection because somebody that's fighting you that hard is more than likely at one of the lowest places in life and they need to know the hope of Jesus Christ who can set them free from sin and death. You may be the only one the only Jesus with skin on that they've ever met. But you show them who Jesus is and you allow him to do his mighty work through the power of his Holy Spirit in their lives. Sometimes it's the enemy speaking through the person to yell and scream at you. All the vitriol that they feel and the hatred they feel toward themselves comes out and harms those that are closest to them. You press in, you pray, you gently guide and care for them and you look for opportunities for God to show you how to minister. Church, you are the hands and feet. You are the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is a living, breathing organism that moves and goes and does. Love does. Love doesn't quit and never gives up. What, what, what are we talking about here? It never loses hope. Sometimes people need to see that hope. And if you're here today and you don't have that hope, you may be at one of the lowest points of your life. There is hope. And as I said earlier, hope has a name. And it's Jesus. How many of you have heard of the, uh, the author the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Some of you have, some of you haven't. He's a great novelist. Um, he lived in Russia during a time that it was communist Russia. So Russia, when the wall fell in Berlin, the Berlin Wall, when that fell, communism kind of crumbled in the USSR, which is what it was once known as. It's now called Russia. But in communist Russia, prior to 1989, when the wall fell, it was brutal. 
There were dictators, it was really bad. Now, Alexander Solzhenitsyn lived in a time where Stalin was the dictator. Stalin was brutal. He was actually, believe it or not, just as bad, if not worse, than Hitler during World War II. Of his own people, he allowed nearly 20 to 25 million, some estimates state, of his own people to starve to death, to be brutalized, to die in prisons. Alexander was one of them because he was a resistor of the Stalinist Russia. Listen to his story really quickly as I close. Alexander was a prisoner in this Soviet prison in Siberia. And if you know anything about Siberia, it's up you know, along the line of the upper parts of Alaska, if you go around the world, it is brutally cold, 40 plus, negative 40 plus below, or negative 40 below zero in the milder areas. It's brutal. And he was sent to be in a prison there. He became so weak and so discouraged, as a matter of fact, that he wished he would die. Death has to be better than the torture I'm experiencing in prison here in Siberia, he thought. The guards would beat him and usually would kill anyone that stopped working. And so he had a plan. And one day, the very next day, I'm going to stop working. Beat me to death. It's better than suffering in this hell called prison. But as soon as he stopped working, another Christian drew a cross where Alexander could see it. And Alexander said that he was so encouraged by remembering that God gives hope and courage that he decided to continue working because of a Christian who cared too much to let him give up. Alexander would go on to get out of prison, would be one of the greatest authors of his time, and would talk about the truths of the horror of communism and socialism and would say it only leads to death. But because of a Christian who cared enough for him in prison, he knew there was a God and that God is who he surrendered his life to. Alexander would become a very strong Christian in the faith and he would do things out of a love that he first experienced in that cold prison in Siberia from that one Christian who merely drew a cross to remind him there is hope. So my question is, who are you helping and encouraging these days? Is there someone you know of that could use some encouragement? We have a dysfunctional society now. There are people that are grasping to know who they are, to figure out what their identities are. And if your identity is not rooted in Christ, your identity could be rooted in any other thing. It could be rooted in your sexuality. It could be rooted in your addiction. It could be rooted in success or workaholism, anything. Your identity must solely be rooted in Christ for you to be a person who has hope. So if you know somebody that doesn't have their identity rooted in Christ, who are you encouraging? Who are you giving hope to? Is someone you know going through one of the most difficult and distressing situations in life right now, and they don't know that there's another tomorrow coming along that they should be there for? Sometimes it just takes a word. Sometimes it just takes your presence. But what are you doing to be hope embodied to somebody else? 
If love hopes all things, why don't you help somebody else to see the hope of Christ through their difficult circumstances? As our worship team comes forward today, let me remind you of our key point. And the key point is, in times of distress, it's important to look at who is for us rather than who is against us. And if you are a believer in Christ, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? I've been at some low points in life too. I know what it's like to hit the bottom of depression. I've struggled with depression. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. I've struggled with depression all my life. Remember having my first panic attack, an anxiety attack when I was 15 or 16 years old. It wasn't fun. I thought I was physically dying because I'm a bottler. I bottle things. And what happens in a person's body is when you bottle enough stuff in there, you become so worried and anxious and depressed that sometimes it comes out in ways that are very ugly. For me, it came out in panic attacks. Shortness of breath, tingling in my fingers, my extremities going numb, my lips going numb, and this fuzziness that feels like you're going to pass out. It feels like you're having a heart attack. I don't know how else to describe it. It just is an ugly situation. Sometimes it comes out in explosive rage and anger toward other people. Sometimes it comes out in anger toward yourself. And like I said earlier, sometimes people who bottle all of that nastiness in that have no place of hope in their life, in their life. I don't know if you need hope or if you are a hope giver today, but I want you to have an opportunity to pray. I would love for you, if you want somebody to pray with you, to come to my right, your left, maybe you're struggling to find hope. Or maybe you know of somebody in life, in your life, that is struggling to find hope and you want somebody to help pray with you for that. Please come to my right, your left. Maybe you just need to pray alone, and that's okay too. You can come to my left, your right, and you reconcile some things with this God of the universe who created you and knit you together in your mother's womb. Remember that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God believes in you enough to give his one and only son for you. All he wants you to do is to believe. So I don't know where you are today. Are you like Hannah, distressed to the point where you can't eat and where you can't think of anything but the reality of your current circumstance? Are you somebody that could give hope because you've been through what some other people are going through now? Let's pray. Father, we know that you are the maker and creator of all things that in you there is life eternal through your son, Jesus Christ. That God, there is life everlasting for those who believe in you through your son, Jesus Christ. And that God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can walk through some of the deepest, darkest valleys of life without fear, knowing that you are with us. Set us free from the burden of hopelessness, I pray. 
and help those of us who are bearers of hope because of our belief in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Help those of us that know that hope to share that hope with others even when they press away or press in or press away from us and, and fight against us, help us to press in and show them the love of God that can cover a multitude of sin. We give you this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.